Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. I'm really excited for this episode because of its significance. Yeah, it's pretty powerful stuff. Yeah, pretty powerful. Um, what is it? We're going to talk about significance levels and power and all of these things that you have to think about when you're doing hypothesis testing. All right. You are listening to Linear Digressions. Don't you think a mathematical superhero would have the, the war cry statistical power? Oh, yeah. I think that's a probably. I can't come up with anything better off the top of my head. So sure. <laughs> All right. I don't know that it's a mathematical. I think it would be more like a, a frequentist statistician a frequentist superhero. Superhero. Yeah. <laughs> but now we're getting maybe a little too into the weeds. Yeah. We should talk about uh, what it is that we're talking about. Uh, sure. Yeah. So, so our bad puns make sense. <laughs> yeah. So we're talking about hypothesis testing, basically, uh, which is something that we've talked about in a few different contexts on this podcast before, but just going a little bit deeper into the idea of significance levels, um, type one and type two error, the kinds of things that you want to be cognizant of if you're actually trying to do one of these things and make sense of the results that you get. It's interesting. It seems to me like when you say um, hypothesis testing, that seems to me just like a really simple concept. You have a hypothesis, you test it, and you figure out if you're right or wrong. But what I'm hearing you say is that it's more complicated than that. Uh, yeah, but like let's let's walk through it together. So okay. um, let me feed you uh, an example of like a pretty se- uh, typical setup for a hypothesis test and well, we'll unpack together all the ways that, or some of the ways it can be tricky. So very common scenario in which you're doing hypothesis testing is like an A-B test. Give me an example of something that you might A-B test. All right. Um, A simple uh, example from web development. Let's say you've got your call to action button in your app or on your website, and you want to see whether making your button orange or green will get more clicks, will get more people to interact with it. And so you do an A-B test and you say, okay, half of the visitors to my website or half of the users of my app are gonna get an orange button, the other half are gonna get a green button and we're gonna do this with like thousands and thousands of people. And then at the end of the day, we should be able to say, if we keep everything else the same, if the orange button gets more clicks, it is likely with some degree of significance based on our sample size that the orange button is actually better and that that result is generalizable if you were to run it with millions of users or something like that. Great. Yeah. So I think you actually got a lot of the outlines there. So just one small amendment that I would add for the statisticians in the back is that it's very important for A-B tests that it be a random assignment. So you're not allowed to get the orange button if you are a good user and the green button if you're a bad user or like, yeah. I don't know, something like that. Just a and detail. There there are a lot of ways to, to like fall into that hole. You can't say like, okay, we're just going to, we're going to assign all of our early users, the orange button and the later users, the green button, because even though you think there's not something that correlates with the age of the user, there may actually be uh, the age of the user on the platform. I mean, yeah. So just randomize. Um, but that's all we need to say about that. Um, but the second the second thing I wanted to highlight was something you started to say at the end, which was, well, so you got your data set and you've got some distribution of, let's say, all the folks who got your regular green button. 
and then all of the folks who got your trendy new orange button. And you say with some kind of confidence that the orange button is better, and you're pretty sure that that's going to be true when you scale it out to the whole population. Fair, mm-hmm. fair synopsis of what you said? Yeah. Okay, cool. So a couple things I want to highlight there. First is that a lot of times when you're talking about hypothesis testing, there's this notion of the null hypothesis, which is a little bit of a privileged concept. It's like, what would happen if nothing changed? And so in this case, it's worth calling out explicitly that there's kind of a status quo option, which is keeping the green button. And then there's the razzle-dazzle new thing, which is the orange button. And so a lot of times when you're doing hypothesis testing, it's the likelihood that you're going to be rejecting the null hypothesis, which is usually kind of implicitly accepting some alternative hypothesis, although it's a little bit complicated. This is frequentist statistics. So that was one thing that I wanted to mention. And then the second thing was that, uh, I forget if you said it or not explicitly, but I think you might've had a parenthetical or two in there where it was kind of like, well, once you've collected enough data and you see Mm. that the rates are different enough, you have some confidence. And that's the that's the heart of what we're going to be talking about today. The how confident can you be in your uh, in the result that you feel like you've observed? Yeah. So you said two things in there, and I'd love to hear you explain a little bit more about why you said them. So one is that you have to collect a certain amount of data before you are ready to make make an answer. So why did you say that? Well, I guess if you take this to its to its extreme and you say, okay, we're just going to take two visitors to the website. We're going to take uh, the first person, give them the orange button, the second person, give them the green button. And then if, the, if one of them clicks, then we're going to say that that button is better. Well, you know, you might just get, you might have gotten a random user who really likes orange or maybe a random user who was intentionally looking for that action and then the other user was looking for some uh, some different information and i think i guess that's fundamentally because humans are these quantified things you can't say like well half of me clicked the orange button and 60% of this person clicked the the green button or something like that like you as a as a person as a sample, either click or you don't. So you lose some information there. Each human is not fully representative of your population, uh, but a lot of humans together are. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does. So if I can summarize that back to you, you, calling back to some other episodes that we've done for those of those of you who've been listening to us for a while, like the general goal of statistics is that you have some sample and you're, you can measure you know, differences in quantities and all these kinds of things on that sample. Um, the exercise of statistics is figuring out how those measurements and inferences are going to extrapolate out to the larger population that you're interested in. So if you don't have a sample that's big enough to capture all of the you know, all of the subtlety in the whole population as a whole, then your extrapolation has a pretty good chance of falling flat on its face. And so the larger the sample that you're able to collect, the more likely that you're getting something that's representative of your population as a whole and your inferences are going to be better. Got it. So sample size and sample randomness. Well, sure. Yeah. You don't want to just be drawing literally the same person over and over again. That would be a, that would be a a bad outcome because you basically only have (laughs) one person at that point. Yeah. And then the second thing that you said was, okay, you need to have a sample that's big enough. We're going to come back to that idea of big enough. 
And the second thing is that if there's a big enough difference between the green and the orange, then you should be able to tell it. So take that apart a little bit for me. If there's a big enough difference between the green and the orange? Yeah. Well, I mean, um, I don't know if this is what you're getting at, but if you were instead comparing uh, light orange to dark orange or something like that, the then then you have a smaller difference between the things you're measuring, and so you would expect to see a smaller effect. Is that what you're getting at? Mm, not exactly, but maybe indirectly. So let's imagine the case in which you have... 10 million people who co- come through your A-B test. You have like tons and tons of statistics. Okay. And 50.001% of them click on the green button and 49.999% of them click on the orange button. When you actually analyze the data, would you say with great confidence that the green button is like definitely, definitely better? I see what you're saying. Yeah, if it's pretty much... 50-50, even if you have a lot of people, well, I guess you need, the, the closer the results are, the more people you need in the sample to be able to um, say things. I, so the thing that's coming to mind is this um, this visual of, of looking at the results in a graph and you have error bars. And the relationship that I understand, at least, is if you sample more people, then those error bars are going to be tighter around your result. And if you sample fewer people, then your error bars are going to be wider and further away from the result that you think you're seeing. And so if you see 51 to 49, your results are, are 51 to 49, and however you calculate the error bars, it turns out the error bars are like uh, 4% at I don't know, P95, which is like 95% confidence, well, then you can't really say that you have a statistically significant result there because in your sampling of the population, you have some amount of noise, and that noise is too large compared to the um, the result that you observe. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a, you did a decent job of describing it there. That's about what I would have said too. I even so, used fancy terms like P95. <laughs> I noticed that. I need. Is that like P90X? It's like a workout thing. What P90X is a workout thing? Oh yeah, it's like a it's like CrossFit or something. I did not know that. Uh, that is consistent with my ideas about how much you enjoy <laughs> lifting weights. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Uh, you got it. Yeah. The general idea is that the bigger the differences between the two, the two outcomes that you're testing against each other, the easier it will be to say with great confidence, which one is, is the winner, which is usually the gist of a hypothesis test. So imagine that you start taking data and for the first 100 people that you measure, they all pick the green button. Well, the, probably means there's something wrong with your test, but let's say you go back and you troubleshoot it and <laughs> yeah. no, the result holds like you don't need to collect another 10 million minus 100 data points to convince yourself that you should probably do the green button. Uh, oh, and interesting. So, so you're saying that you could even like start your test, look at the results after a short time. And if the results are really, really clear, then you could even bail out early if you have no other reason to, to collect data. 
Well, with great caution, perhaps. So, and this is really getting into the crux of what I wanted to talk about today. So when you're running an A-B test, one of the things that you should do at the beginning is try to figure out how much data you need to collect in order to draw a firm conclusion about uh, the thing that you're trying to measure. So the thing that you have under your control is how many uh, times you sample from that distribution, basically how long you run the test. And a thing that you don't have under your control directly, but that you're interested in measuring and that is really important for your outcome is how different the two scenarios are. And there are a couple other details that are important, like whether you think one of the detail, one of the outcomes is always going to be strictly better than the other one. Um, and so you're just trying to measure if it's like significantly better versus right. sometimes it can be worse or, like you know, how many people click on my button that's visible versus my button that's invisible, that's hidden. Like, well, come on, you know, you don't have to test that probably. Or if you do test it, it well, yeah, know. that would be a weird test. But like, it's here's kind of an example. example. Yeah, like you could imagine that you have your green button and maybe your orange button, your orange button could do better. It could do worst. That's called a two-sided hypothesis test or a one-sided hypothesis test might be something like, I usually have this promotion that's $5 off. I'm going to run it with $10 off. And, you know, there's really very little realistic chance that the $10 off is going to have fewer people just randomly that redeem it because more mm -hmm. people are going to like more money. But, you know, is $10 like significantly better than $5? That might right. be so you're a good example. that there are some tests that are cheaper to run or that are less risky to run. Well, I think that's a really good point. Yeah. So coming back to the idea of how much data do you need to collect? You know, some of these, some of these tests aren't free and some of them you're using to make decisions that have real impact if you were to implement them onto like the bottom line of your company. So on the one hand, you want to be cognizant upfront of how much data do we need to collect in order to convince ourselves that we really do have the right answer here. And so that might lead you to collect a really big sample, but you can overpower your test in the sense that potentially collect way more data than you actually needed to draw your conclusion and, you know, maybe run your A-B test for two weeks longer than you needed to. And in the meantime, you're handing out a bunch of $10 coupons unnecessarily. Mm. Hey, uh, I've got two things to bring up, which are one you also could be sacrificing uh, users that now can't be in another test. So if you're running a lot of different tests and you have, let's say, 10,000 users a week, well, you only have 10,000 users that you can experiment with and, and give them different experiences and, and see how it goes. And so if you run your test for a lot longer or with way more people than you need, then you can't run other tests with those users unless you do some really fancy statistics and, and, and experimentation setup, which will probably lead you to to invalidate all of your results because you'll do it wrong. <laughs> yeah, um, that sounds tricky. And then the other thing is, well, we were talking about the $5 off versus $10 off thing. Like, yeah, there's if you have the money and you're, you're fine giving the $10 off, that's not really a, a negative. But then you also are probably, you could be polluting your tests or changing the state of things for, for the future. Like, for example, I might be looking at your company and thinking about buying your product. And then when you say $10 off, then I think, oh, okay, well, I'm never going to buy it $5 off again because now I know that, you know, at some point they'll do $10 off. So you could actually accidentally 
uh, mess yourself up in ways that you can't measure or necessarily predict. Yeah, that's a really good point. Now, the other way that you can have trouble here, and this is getting back to your question earlier, like, oh, can I just stop my test part of the way through if I'm getting such a clear signal? Yes, sort of, but you have to be really, really careful here. So this is the other thing that I wanted to point out. So a lot of times, take a step back here for a second. A lot of times at the outset, what you're doing when you're setting up your A-B test is you're making some kind of maybe educated guess, honestly, about how big the difference is between the two populations that you're going to see. And there might be a lot of different ways that you can do this, but I'm not sure that statistics exactly has the answer for you here. It requires a lot of domain knowledge and like intuition, perhaps, even whether people care more about $10 and $5 or green versus orange or whatever. So you make some kind of guess about the difference in uh, the outcomes that you're going to see. And then there's calculations or there's numbers that you can plug into calculations for um, different statistical tests. There's things called like T tests and Z tests. And there's a couple different metrics that you can use depending on the type of measurement that you're making to back out how much data do you need to collect to be able to measure a difference of that size with a certain statistical a certain statistical likelihood. So usually something like a p-value of 0.05. So that's a quick description of the calculation that you do up front to say, how big does my sample need to be? Now, the risk that you run when you stop a test early is, as we know, you're sampling from the population, you're going to get statistical fluctuations. And if you're a little bit lucky or unlucky, depending on how you look at it, you can have a statistical fluctuation that can push you over kind of what your threshold might be for saying that you found the answer. So you might find from the first five buttons that all five of them are green and none of them are orange, but Mm. that's not actually that unlikely from just the statistics of flipping coins. You know, 10 in a row might be a little bit less likely, or maybe you get eight and two, and so you have a clear front runner. But if you were to continue to collect data, the question is, does that 80-20 ratio continue to persist? Or does it kind of just fade away because you happen to just get a few more heads than tails at a certain point? Right. And so that is the danger of stopping early, is that there's actually a you know quite substantial risk sometimes of making a making a decision basically based on a sampling outlier. And so you have to be really cautious of this because it can be, especially if you're running lots and lots of A-B tests, at a certain point, you are going to start to see things that are highly unlikely just because that's how statistics works. So you have to give yourself enough time and have enough patience that even if you're starting to see something that you think looks like a really strong result, continue to take data on it and the effect could go away or the effect size could could still decrease a lot. And so you want to you wanna have enough patience to actually see that, which you have to take the full sample to do. Right. Oh, that's interesting. So, so basically you're saying that within one test or one session or, or whatever, you could see something and say, whoa, this is a clear result. It's one in a hundred. But then if you measure things, uh, if you measure different things a hundred times, if you run a hundred experiments, 
one of those results is going to be one in a hundred because you're running a hundred of them. So, yeah, it, it seems like caution is warranted. Another thought on this is, and this is more of a, a specific observation, but let's say that you start your experiment in the morning and then by the afternoon you're like, whoa, we've got some pretty clear signal that the orange button is better. Well, maybe people just like orange buttons more in the morning. And so if you stop it early rather than waiting the three full days, then you might actually be accidentally sampling people from a certain time of day versus the entire an entire day. That's um, a good point. That's really this good is point. also a reason why maybe people will run uh, experiments that last one week because you can get the same thing with any repeating cycle. So on Mondays, people tend to behave differently than on Fridays. And if whatever it is that you're measuring could be impacted by that, and you may not even know if it can be, then that's a thing to take into account too. That's a that's a great point. So I think we've actually covered a lot of the most important bases here around the the power of a sample that you use that has to do with basically the likelihood of making certain kinds of mistakes based on the effect size and how much you sample from it. Um, hypothesis testing. There's a really nice Stitch Fix blog post that I'll post on LinearDigressions.com that goes That's into... the clothing, clothing company, right? Yeah, yeah. They have a really good um, data science blog, as it turns out. Oh, cool. Yeah. So post a link on there for somebody who wants to dig into some of the equations a little bit more, and it gets into some of the details of like one-sided versus two-sided tests and this kind of stuff. But for the, the casual observer, uh, now you've had a gentleman's introduction to uh, hypothesis testing. Linear Digressions is a creative commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at Lynn Digressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.